Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, if this is your first or one of your first times uh, coming, you picked a weird time to start coming to church here. Um, <laughs> for a, a few reasons, chapters 8 and 9 almost don't fit with the rest of the book. And so that's strange. You're coming in the middle of something, but it, it feels like it's just been lifted up out of you know, a, a foreign context. And also, for the next couple weeks, two, three weeks, I'm going to be talking more about... Seems like it sound, sounds okay? All right. Uh, I'm going to be talking more about giving than I have in the last 12 years as pastor. So it's fun for all of us. It's going to be great. Um, I bet he says that every week. Yeah, okay. Let's go to Second uh, Corinthians 8. Verses 1 through 9, I'm going to read this uh, passage. I'm reading out of the New King James Version of the Bible. We'll pray, and then we'll get into studying each verse. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, They were freely willing, imploring us with such urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, And in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. God, we trust you. We trust that you are more than willing and more than able to come and meet with your people and to do the work in our hearts that's necessary to shape us into the image of Christ. We fix our eyes on you, Jesus. We want to be, uh, we want to be changed. We want to, be, um, to develop the family resemblance with you. Uh, as we see you as you are, we want to become like you are. And I pray that through the preaching of your word and the fellowship of your saints, this would be so. Amen. Amen. On on a first read through of chapter eight and even chapter nine, which we'll get into in the coming weeks, it's almost hard to figure out why these show up in this particular book. Um, this is a chapter about giving. It's about generosity. Uh, later in the chapter, he's going to talk about you know making a bringing a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is going through a rough time. And he talks about this church in Macedonia that he hasn't talked about yet in First Corinthians. Um, but the greater part of the book, when you when you start in chapter one and go all the way to the end, we've seen these repeated cycles that are predictable almost by by now, by the time we get to chapter eight. This is a book about suffering. It's a book about comfort. It's a book about reconciliation and renewal. And it's this formula has been repeated to the point where it becomes predictable. And the thing is, this passage in Second Corinthians isn't even about the Corinthians. Mainly, it's not at first about their generosity. It's about these other churches in Macedonia that are really generous and doing really well. And then later in the chapter, I mentioned it's going to talk about a church in Jerusalem, which is going through a rough patch. 
Neither of these churches have a really big role to play in the rest of the letter to the Corinthians. So you have chapters 8 and 9 about giving and generosity. And then chapter 10, just to give you a preview of what's coming, he goes right back to defending his apostolic authority. And then chapter 11 and 12, he talks more about suffering and weakness. And then he finishes up the book in chapter 13, talking about his authority and his suffering and his weakness. And you could almost outline the whole book of 2 Corinthians and show that chapters 1 through 7 and chapters 10 through 13, that's one section of the book. And then you've got chapters 8 and 9 when he talks about giving. Um, But as hard as Paul is to follow sometimes, I don't think we should assume that he writes things at random. And as disconnected as some of these things can seem at first, I believe we have to come to the scriptures with the kind of humility that assumes that the Holy Spirit of the living God who inspired these words is a God of order. And so we study the chapter. We're going to study the chapter and go verse by verse like we usually do. And we want to understand what's going on. But we also want to see why it is that we're talking about it now. Uh, why Paul is writing about these things here. And, and the key verses in chapter 8 and re- that really kind of hooks this chapter and chapter 9 to the rest of the book. There's two mentions um, of, or not, not two, there's four actually, mentions of the word grace in our text. And then this ver- uh, the message of verse 9. Verses 1 and 6 and 7 and 8, uh, or sorry, 9, all call generosity a grace. Uh, and, and encourages the Corinthians to abound in this grace. And verse 9 is about Jesus and sets him up as our example in generosity. Making the issue of giving not just a sort of, you know, like Christian tax uh, or something like that but as an essential part of imitating Jesus himself. So as Paul repeats this theme of like, I'm suffering, we're disconnected, but we need to be reconciled together. The church and Paul are getting back together. He gives this example of caring for those in need, of caring for the poor, of of giving of yourself generously at great expense to yourself. He says, that's what this kind of reconciliation that I've been calling to you, that's what it looks like. And what Paul has been calling the Corinthians to since 1 Corinthians, all the way back, he says, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, right? That's been his, his one-hit wonder all the way through. And then by, by now, you know, he's, he's a few letters into his relationship with the Corinthians, and he's saying, following Jesus, knowing Christ and him crucified, looking at Jesus, what you see when you look at Jesus is a God who gives of himself generously, So as I've been calling you to imitate Christ, right? So that's chapter 11, verse 1, kind of our theme, interpretive verse for understanding Paul and the Corinthians. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It says, imitating Christ, what does that look like? It looks like one who is rich becoming poor for the benefit of another. So hopefully you can see this this chapter and this section kind of fit into the larger Corinthian problems. Um, And with those things in mind, uh, we can see that you know, this isn't entirely at random, and this fits within the greater themes of 2 Corinthians. So let's take a look at the few verse, uh, first few verses. He says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace, that's a key word here, of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's saying that the churches in Macedonia received something great, a grace from God. They received a gift from God. And their gift, he's going to describe, is one of giving. God's grace on them is something that enabled them to give of themselves. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, 
that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Liberality is generous giving. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with such much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. So right off the bat, we see that the giving which Paul is highlighting is a grace. That's what he calls it. He calls it a grace. The grace that's on the church of Macedonia is that God allowed them to share in this ministry generously. The one who gives a gift is actually showing that they themselves are the recipient of a grace of a gift. And in Romans chapter 12, it's one of the passages where Paul lists spiritual gifts just in a nice, nice orderly list. And he includes giving along with gifts such as teaching and exhortation and maybe other things that we more uh, or normally think of as spiritual gifts. He says giving is a gift. And uh, what Paul is, is doing in encouraging the Corinthians' generosity is really an appeal to live the life of Christ, made alive by his Spirit, who gives us all the gifts that we need and forms the life of Christ in us. It is an appeal that Paul is making to come into the fullness of the grace of God, who himself gives liberally and without reproach. This is another way among the thousands of ways that Paul says the same thing, which is, I want you to be like Jesus. Now, the churches of Macedonia that he mentions, seemingly out of the blue, right? This includes the Thessalonians. And we know some things about those guys. Paul wrote them a couple letters too, right? This was a church that Paul started, or that Paul planted, in a hurry, uh, he was there maybe about three weeks. He taught three times in the synagogue there in, in Thess Thessalonica. And persecution had already started in earnest. So three weeks, plant a church, move on. And the church there had great trial of affliction, he says, and deep poverty. But they were actually one of the more healthy churches that Paul writes to. They were true to the faith. And what's more, they were deeply concerned with Paul and other missionaries and, and the churches in Jerusalem that were less fortunate and this genuine faith and genuine care shows itself in a diligent generosity. So Paul says, I want to show you how God has blessed this poor, persecuted church. Look how much he's blessed these poor, persecuted people. They love other churches. That's how you can tell they're so blessed. One of the things Paul is doing here is showing the Corinthians what it looks like to be a church that is deeply connected with the apostles and with the rest of the body of Christ. He had made the appeal at the beginning of chapter 7, which we looked at last week, open your hearts to us. That's Paul and the other missionaries. He says, open your hearts to us. Let's be friends again. And he's provided evidence of his great love for the church over and over and over. And now he's saying, this is what it looks like when that love that I have for you, this is what it looks like when it goes both ways. It looks like a togetherness in both suffering and in comforting. And this is actually an outworking of God's grace in the lives of both those in the church and the missionaries that are part of the church's extended family, the church's ministers. Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians stands in stark contrast to the way he's been treated by the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians, you might remember, had rejected the apostle. They were not friends with him right now. Uh, there had been a break in the relationship. But if anyone should be Paul's dearest friends, it should have been the Corinthians. I mentioned that Paul was involved in planting the church in, in Thessalonica and he, you know, maybe three weeks, okay? He had spent a year and a half in Corinth teaching them. And while Corinth was a pretty wealthy city, 
It had some, some wealthy people in it. The Macedonians experienced deep poverty, but they were the ones that were showing this generosity and trying to take care of Paul's needs and, and bring up the collection for the, the poor in other countries. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul had, had started talking about his trouble, right? We knew what this book was going to be like all the way in chapter 1. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. And then in the same chapter, a few verses down, he said that it was his intention to visit the Corinthians after his time in Macedonia. And so it's probably during his visit with the Macedonians where Paul is at his lowest state. He's decided he cannot go to visit the Corinthians because they hate him right now, because of their hostility towards him. It's at that time that the Macedonians, who themselves have deep poverty and are persecuted, they receive Paul. And this is coming at a long, after a long string of persecutions and tribulations in, uh, in Paul's life, that the, the Macedonians, verse 4, implore us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. They say, we want to give. We want to give right now. Now, the Macedonians, while they were suffering persecutions themselves, while they were in deep poverty themselves, plead with Paul, we want to be the ministers. We don't want to just be the recipients here. We want to we bless other people. We want to bless you. We want to bless the, the people that you're collecting money for. Please let us take care of you. Please let us give to your ministry. We want to be a part of what you're doing. There's strong language here. They implored with much urgency. Please, Paul, we want to do this. We want to be a part of your ministry in this way. And I think they needed to use that kind of language, you know, imploring with urgency, because they knew they were poor and persecuted. They knew that Paul knew they were poor. And they all knew that then, like now, there's an awkwardness to all of this. And, you know, the polite, oh, no, thank yous. You really shouldn't. No, I'll take the check. That's fine. You know, all of that would go around. But they were dedicated. They were hungry to be generous in this way because the grace of God was on them to move them towards this kind of giving. So Paul tells this story. He says, I got to tell you, Corinthians, I got to tell you how much God has graced the Macedonian church. Look at the way they're behaving. Can you believe that? There's, that can't be anything short of a work of God in their lives because that's not normal. They're the poor ones. This is widow's might stuff. You know, you're not supposed to give. The rich people are supposed to. No, that's not the way it works. God is moving the church in Macedonia to be this generous. And he's telling this story to the Corinthians, not just to say, you really should be more like your older brother. You know, he's, he's, he's trying to show them this is what grace looks like when it is being worked out in a church that loves the body of Christ and her ministers. This is what spiritual maturity looks like. This is a spiritual church. Remember, he ended chapter 7 by saying, I'm confident in you, that's the Corinthians, in everything. He's confident that the Lord will finish the good work that he began in them. And this description of a mature church is providing the Corinthians with a glimpse of their future, the future that Paul is so confident in. He says, yeah, you're going to grow up. You're going to get better. We've got some mistakes. We're ironing out the wrinkles. But you're going to be full of grace. And I want to show you what that looks like. It looks like the Macedonian church over here. And they're not the church you want to be. They're the persecuted ones. They're the poor ones. They don't have maybe the theological depth that these people that have Apollos as their pastor have. All that kind of stuff. But you know what they are? They're graced. There's also a little wordplay going on here. In verse 4, he mentions the gift that the Macedonians were so eager to give. And the word gift and the word grace are almost the same word. Uh, even, it's even translated like this in some English translations. It's been difficult for translators to figure out whether the word gift or grace 
is referring to a gift that the Macedonians would give, like a care package or something, or the gift was the opportunity itself to bless others. Um, it's, it's difficult because Paul writes a lot, but he's still really confusing. Uh, the, the ESV translates it like this, is begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, the Macedonians saw that the best gift that they could receive was an opportunity to give. And the King James Version does it a little dif different. It says, praying with us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. This ambiguity is important. If you can't tell if the giving is a gift or the gift that's given is a gift, you're starting to understand the Christian paradox of generosity. Who's getting blessed here? Uh-huh. Acts 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You don't have to meditate on that verse very long to tie yourself in knots. Be like, okay, so the blessing is a gift, right? Getting a blessing, that's a gift. So if giving is the blessing, then you're receiving a blessing when you give. So giving is getting? Uh, if you can't tell who's getting blessed, you're close to understanding how this works. This is all very pertinent to the Corinthians themselves. Remember in 1 Corinthians, several chapters were dealing with spiritual gifts, spiritual graces. And one of the things about the Corinthians that we know by now is that they really wanted to be gifted. In fact, they wanted to be the most gifted. They wanted to be super gifted. They wanted to be really spiritual. And they wanted to have all the gifts that they could possibly have. And their uses of those gifts got a little sloppy. And Paul had to correct a few things in, in the letter to the 1 Corinthians. But he doesn't correct them for their desire to be blessed. He doesn't correct them for their desire for gifts. Now he's talking to the same church, showing that the evidence of giftedness, the evidence of grace on a believer is generosity. It's like, well, do you give? He and the other apostles have said the same thing elsewhere in so many words. Usually one of those words is love. Uh, love is the evidence of the Spirit's working in a Christian's life. It is the measure of maturity. And it's not another separate quality other than these virtues like generosity. The generosity of a church was the love the church had just put into action. You know, it's, it's been said before, and I've said it before, that you can, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. I think that's probably true. To say that generosity is the evidence of love and that generosity is the evidence of spiritual grace, you're saying the same things. In verse 5, Paul writes, And not only as we had hoped but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Even though the gift and the care was being given to Paul and his missionary team and eventually to the, the church in Jerusalem, the Macedonian Christians were not just serving Paul. They were, they were not just paying their dues to, you know, like, you know, that, well, you planted the church, so I guess we owe you or anything like that. It wasn't wages. They weren't just serving Paul, they were serving God. Their generosity to Paul was not just a giving of themselves to his brand of missionary journeys or something. It was a giving of themselves to the Lord, which resulted in giving to those in need, which at that moment happened to be Paul. Now we're familiar with this principle, aren't we? We can read this and then hear Jesus say, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Well, how did we do that, Lord? Because as you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. 
These Christians were able to welcome Paul, show hospitality to Paul, and bless Paul with the things he needed because they had already made a commitment to serve the Lord in every way that came up. They had already made a commitment to give themselves entirely to the Lord, knowing that the way that would manifest itself, the way that would look, you know, take on flesh, is through loving other people. You see the attitude in the most generous people. You always see this, and you know, you meet people who are just, you know, beyond the rest of us in their generosity. They're usually the happiest people too, it seems. But they say things like, well, it's the Lord's anyway. It's his stuff anyway. It's God's stuff to begin with. Everything I have is his. So the Macedonians, they, they got there. They realized, well, we've given ourselves to the Lord. Like we are his by right of creation. He made us. He saved us. We're his by right of redemption. Uh, I am not my own. Everything I have, everything I am is his. So to give you his stuff, just it just makes sense. They gave themselves to Paul, but this was an easy thing for them to do because they had already given themselves to the Lord. Generosity for Paul is not just like an avenue towards, you know, Christian brownie points or something like that. He says it is the evidence of the love of God that the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts. And this is really what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians in. He's encouraging them in generosity, sure. He says, you guys should give to the church in Jerusalem because they need some help. That's next week. He wants them to be more like that church down the road in Macedonia, but it's not a numbers game. This isn't a pledge drive or fundraising campaign for the sake of reaching financial goals. Paul wants the Corinthians to give themselves completely over to the Lord. He says they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. He's wanting the Christians in Corinth to give themselves to the Lord and then from that place of heavenly generosity, they would give generously to the needs of the saints. He knows that that would just be a result. In verse 6, he says, So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Titus, remember, went to Corinth to check on how they were doing after Paul wrote a really mean letter to them. Uh, and and they, they treated Titus well, and Titus was there to as Paul's representative, kind of to minister to Corinth. And he's saying, so I encourage Titus to go and complete this grace in you. And we have the word grace twice more. It was in verse 1, now it's in verse 6, again in verse 7. It's kind of sort of in verse 4, where it's translated gift. And then it shows up again in verse 9, when it talks about the grace of Jesus and his generosity. But Titus is told to complete this grace in the Corinthians, this grace of giving. And the Corinthians are told to see to it that they abound in this grace also. And the grace he's talking about is this generous giving. This very well may run counter to the way you think about giving. It very well may run counter to the way you think about grace also. Because we generally think of grace in terms of initial salvation. We were dead in our sins, right? And he made us alive in Christ. And we continue to think of grace as this thing that is completely active on God's part and completely passive on our part. So in other words, if we receive grace, we assume that we are an inert object that is being acted upon rather than an active participant. And we, we go there in our hearts and our minds because we don't want a works-based righteousness. We believe that salvation is a gift. We don't think you earn your way to heaven, things like that. So we, we kind of revert to this definition of grace. But this kind of grace that Paul is talking about is clearly motion-activated. He's saying, you have to fulfill this grace. And I want this guy over here, this pastor, Titus, to make sure that he 
make sure you fulfill this grace, complete this grace, continue in this grace. Um, this grace, this kind of gift from God that enables us to give of ourselves is cooperative in nature. It's motion activated. Your movement is essential for its movement. It is possible for Paul to tell Christians, you need to see to it that you abound in grace. There is an action for you to follow to make sure this grace is not given in vain. It's possible for Paul to encourage a fellow minister, Titus, to see to it that his job is to complete grace in another person's life. Tall order, don't you think? And we've seen already that this is how Paul talks about grace in First and Second Corinthians. A few weeks ago when we were in chapter 6, we read how Paul made this appeal. He says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then we went to a cross-reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says that his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So you have this acting grace and that, that, you know, that renders grace effective. It's still all grace, but it's a grace that calls that is a call to action. It's a grace that's before you that you can only taste through obedience. Blessings are all grace, but obedience brings blessings and disobedience rejects blessings. Titus was to stir up the gift, the grace that was in Corinth. And Paul tells the Corinthians, see to it that you abound in this grace. And he mentions it in the context of these other graces that the Corinthians would be working on to develop on their way to maturity, their faith, speech, knowledge, all diligence and love. The last word of chapter 7, I already mentioned it this morning. Paul says, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. He really saw that the Corinthian church was going to develop in their, their uh, maturity. These are some of the everythings that he's confident in, that they would abound in these things, that the blessings of God would be on them abundantly in their faith, in their speech. Paul writes that our speech should be seasoned with grace in knowledge and diligence and their love. Paul is confident that they're growing in these things. He says, just like you're maturing in these areas, just like you're growing in all of these areas, be sure that you're not neglecting this other essential virtue, this gift of giving, this gift of generosity. Let's take the next verse. Verse 8. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your faith by the diligence of others. Now understand what he's saying here. He's going to be talking about taking up a collection for the poor later. It's clear he's talking about financial giving. It's dollars and cents. But the Macedonians were a church that cared for Paul personally. They, they loved him. They did this out of love, not of, um, not of any other sort of obligation. So in verse 8, he's clarifying with the Corinthians, I'm not laying down this apostolic order here. I'm not making a a new commandment, you know, the 11th commandment, thou shalt give Paul money, uh, you know, because he's once again, that's not what I'm doing, because you can certainly give without loving. You can do it. He says, I'm, I'm not speaking a commandment. I'm showing you what love looks like. And yes, I am, I am testing the sincerity of your love by comparing this. Okay, testing in the Bible. Testing is not always as manipulative as you might think it is. Uh, you may think of God testing someone in order to show their weaknesses or bring them lower or even for God to learn something about a person that he just didn't know already. Okay, that's bad theology and a wrong way of thinking of testing, right? You've probably heard me say this before. A test is given so that you can advance to the next grade. It's an exam that completes a course of learning 
So Paul has been teaching the Corinthians, right? He was there a year and a half in person. He's written them multiple letters. We only have two of them. Some of them have been learning. He's taught them about love. It seems like some of them are coming around and starting to comprehend the class material. So now Paul is giving them another, uh, well, he's not giving them another assignment. He's not just giving a commandment as part of a curriculum saying, okay, now next it's time to give, 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 give. That's an order. No, he's saying, I've taught you the material. You know this stuff. You know this stuff. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the knowledge. You see, you have the examples. You see what love is. Now here's the test. You got to put that into practice. doesn't make any sense if you go to the class and then you, you don't take the final exam. You know where Paul says, uh, he writes in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's in the context of, written in the context of love, right? To be mature, to grow up, to not be a child anymore, to advance, to graduate out of the remedial Christian education and into the real world, into maturity, one must love well. So Paul puts up the example and he says, these Macedonians, they're doing it right. They're a mature church. I'm using their example as a test, as an exam, as a final exam for you. You know what to do. The real question is just, are you going to do it? Now, Paul writes like this elsewhere, too, and about the same subject uh, material. In Philippians, he writes to that church about their generosity. And interestingly enough, just like he's telling Corinth about the Macedonians' generosity, in Philippians 4, he commends the Philippians for sending him support while he was in Macedonia. So they're all, you know, supporting the, Paul's missionary journeys at all these different churches. But listen to how he describes the benefit of giving and how different this is from, you know, a money grab of sorts. Philippians 4.16 says, For even in Thessalonica you send aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And after this, he goes on in Philippians 4 and basically says, I don't need your money. Prison has everything I need. And, then, and he says, I'm fine. This is great. It's fine. But I do need to know that you giving is good for you. He didn't need the Philippians or the Corinthians to give. But he knows that Christians following Jesus do need to give. We need that. We need that in order for our hearts to mature and be shaped into Christ's heart. He knows there's fruit for the giver. There's rewards. There's advancement in the kingdom of God for those who pass their exams. Knowing that it is a grace to give, he wants this grace to be theirs. Knowing that this is a blessing and it is more blessed to give than to receive, he wants these people to get into the habit of giving in order to receive this blessing. And this is part of the advancement that takes place upon passing the test. Now this idea of a mature faith being demonstrated in loving generosity, it's an idea that you know you can see in the, with the example he gives in Macedonians, okay, the church, they did a really good job. But the, the real standard for this kind of giving, of course, is much higher than a church north of Greece. Uh, the example is Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, Jesus is a giver. You should be like him. Now, as a sort of sidebar here, this verse does a really nice job of correcting a lot of bad ideas about the morality of riches and poverty. Because there will always be people in every age of humanity who think that goodness and favor will always be rewarded by, you know, with wealth. 
Uh, it's the health and wealth gospel. If God really loves you, you'll be rich and you won't skin your knees anymore when you fall off a bike. I don't know. Like, it doesn't, no, no, it doesn't work that way. God loves Jesus and Jesus became poor. Jesus was a poor man. Uh, but just as often, you'll have someone know just enough Bible verses about money to do some damage and say that money's evil and that God loves the poor, so therefore, eat the rich. Sorry, still no, still wrong. And this verse takes care of both of those problems. Jesus was and is perfect, and he was and is rich. doesn't get richer than heaven. There are righteous poor, like Jesus was while he walked the earth, and there are righteous rich. The material point is not the materials. It's who you're like, and we're supposed to be like Jesus. Jesus, according to verse 9, is sacrificially generous. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word grace again. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty, might become rich. Paul says something interesting here. He says Jesus was rich. When was Jesus rich? Paul is clearly talking about Christ before he was born of the Virgin Mary. So we got some major league theology stuff that he's introducing here. He's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. This, you know, this first generation of Christians did not believe that Jesus was a good man who was just something special. They believed with Paul wholeheartedly that he was heavenly, that he was God himself. Now, we know that this argument wouldn't make sense if Jesus' story actually started with Christmas because all through his earthly life, he was poor. His parents were poor. When he was dedicated at the temple, Mary and Joseph offered the poor man's offering of birds rather than a sheep or a larger animal. As an adult, Jesus did not own a home. He did not have a place to lay his head. He just stayed at his friend Pete's house. Okay? He, he wasn't rich. But we know Jesus' story doesn't begin on Christmas. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is God of very God and existed in perfect union with the Father, with all of heaven's glories at his disposal. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus is praying in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. He says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Those are the glories that Paul's talking about. He was rich, and he became poor. Philippians 2 verse 7 says Christ emptied himself. And in that passage, which highlights the humility of Christ, the generosity of Christ, it's all started by a call to be like Jesus in this. Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And anticipating the class response, What mind was in Christ Jesus? He says, It's this mind. He considered himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. That's the mind of Christ. He's saying the same thing in 2 Corinthians. The discussion about giving is centered around this idea that Jesus is a certain way and it's the best way to be and that we should be like him. He was rich. He became poor that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. As Paul wrote already only a few chapters back, he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The riches of heaven are ours because Christ became poor. His generosity, his sacrifice has generated all of our riches, all of our blessings. And Paul's very clear that we are rich. I'll remind you of what he said in 1 Corinthians 3, um, 21, 22. He said it twice in two verses in a row. All things are yours. Doesn't get richer than that. He says to Christians, all things are yours. Or what about Ephesians 1, where he says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ? 
We talk about wealth and generosity in terms of being empty or being full. And it's the Ephesians, again, that he, he prays that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's rich. That's serious wealth right there. We are blessed. We are rich. You see the phrase, the riches of his grace, as one of Paul's favorite repeated themes all throughout Ephesians and other books. And it's almost always said as a measure of his goodness to us. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And in our text, Paul defines this grace as what's the grace of Jesus. He says the grace of Jesus is this generous giving of himself for our benefit. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 2, 7. He even calls the gospel the riches of Christ. He says in Ephesians 3, 8, he says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, what, what does he preach? I preach the riches of Christ. That's what I'm preaching to you. Don't you want them? <laughs> It's these kinds of things that Paul means when he says that through Christ's poverty, we might become rich. Our riches include all things, all, every spiritual blessing, an ability to receive fellowship with an infinite God, the forgiveness of sins, the kindness of Christ, eternal life. And all of these things are ours because Christ, though being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself in the ESV. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's poverty. But wait, there's more. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's giving was to this end. Christ's humility, his generosity, and his hospitality in welcoming us into the family of God all result in this worship of every tongue confessing and every knee bowing. Christ's emptying of self is for the glory of the Father. And as Paul calls the church to generosity, it's for the same end. I mean, we can hear Jesus speaking through these words saying, glorify, you know, uh, give generously, I'm paraphrasing, so that those can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven in the day of visitation. Glory to the Father is the end result of our generosity, just as it was the end result of Christ's generosity. This is the context for Paul when it comes to giving and just about everything else, for that matter. The Christian perspective of virtue or good works in general is not simply a do it because it's on the list, or do it or else kind of equation. It's not like that. We do the works of Christ because this is how we are being shaped into people that look like Jesus. And this is how we become people that experience this unbroken fellowship of Jesus that is available only for those that are being about their father's business and doing the works of Christ and taking on his yoke, which is light, plowing in the same direction as him. We do the works of Christ because we want to be like him. Doing the things he does is how we are growing into the fullness of the stature of Christ, maturing in our faith and becoming less like the old man and more like the new. And all of this is a grace. It's grace that you can taste. It's good. <laughs> it's the blessings of heaven. You have been gifted by Christ's humility to share in his humility and the glories that follow. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? It's the mind of selfless generosity 
And Paul has already told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, we have the mind of Christ. That means that you have been gifted. You have been graced according to this measure. You have been graced with the spirit of generosity. And as you, as a follower of Christ, are seeking to become more like him in every way, we can take Paul's encouragement as our own. We can encourage one another to be diligent to see that you abound in this grace also. Do not let this grace be received in vain. Seeking Christ is seeking one who has given of himself. And following him will result in you giving of yourself as well. What Paul is calling the church to, what I am calling the church to, is nothing less than fellowship with Christ. If you're going to be with him, doing his kind of thing, doing his stuff, that looks like taking up your cross and following him into a selfless generosity. The practicalities of that may be different from one family to the next. But again, you can, you can give without loving. You cannot love without giving. And as the Holy Spirit of God has been poured out into our hearts, he will be shaping your heart into one that is defined by its generosity. Really, not its generosity. It will be defined by Christ's generosity. That's our goal. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love that you have invited us to participate in your life. We love that you, have, you are uniting us with yourself. That more than just making us uh, like you apart from you, you're, you're calling us to have fellowship with you, and we love it. We pray that you would bless your church however you desire, that we would be uh, receptive vessels uh, to receive whatever work you're doing in our hearts, that you would make us generous, that you would give us the mind of Christ, that whatever graces you have given us would not be received in vain. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Stand, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. <laughs>